don't we pray together before we begin? Lord Jesus, it is our great hope and our confidence that we, when we approach with our souls the mercy seat, we know that you answer prayer. And when we fall there humbly before your feet, we know that none can perish there. With a humble and broken and contrite spirit coming before you, Lord Jesus, and falling before you as King, as Lord, as Savior, as Redeemer, none can perish there. Lord, we live in a world that's perishing, and we live in a world that loves to perish. It craves the sins that lead to its perishing. So, Lord Jesus, I I know that you have given the keys of the kingdom of heaven to your church, and it is our responsibility to use those keys in every area of life that faces us, every, every situation in life that faces us in this world. And so, Lord, I pray you would give us boldness, you would give us confidence, you would give us courage to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven to unlock the glories of the kingdom of heaven for sinners, even when they don't want us to do that and even when they don't want to see those glories. Father, we pray you'd be with us, that you would strengthen us, that you would protect us, you would guard us. We know that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. You have shattered those gates. You have defanged the dragon. He cannot hurt us anymore. So help us, Lord. Be confident in you. Stand firm in your word and proclaim it. Proclaim it boldly and in faith that you might be glorified and that sinners might be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can tell from the reading this morning, we're not picking back up in Matthew chapter 16 today. We will come back to consider the rest of what it means for the church to have the keys of the kingdom of heaven next week. We talk about the authority of the church, the authority that Christ has given to his people. But today we're going to do something different. Today is being referred to as Biblical Sexuality Sermon Sunday. I think they could have chosen a better title, but, <clears throat> but that really does capture what many churches in this country and in Canada and around the world are participating in today. Churches all over Canada and the United States and around the world are joining together this morning to declare God's truth 
about biblical sexual morality. Now, why are they doing that? Well, because on Tuesday, December 7th, 2021, the Canadian Parliament unanimously passed what is referred to as Bill C-4. That bill passed through Parliament, as I said, unanimously. There was not a single dissenting vote among progressives or conservatives in Canada. And how you call yourself a conservative uh, and still pass this bill. But this bill passed unanimously through Parliament and it received royal assent on December 8th, 2021. And it began to take effect either on January 7th or January 8th, 2022. I saw conflicting dates about that. Now this bill is in essence designed to criminalize what is called conversion therapy. You ask, what is conversion therapy? Well, that is a very complicated phrase. If you uh, just do a simple Google search on conversion therapy, you will discover that there are any number of things that fall under the category of conversion therapy. But what this bill is seeking to outlaw in outlawing conversion therapy in Canada is described in the bill as follows, okay? It's complicated language, it's full, but please pay attention because this is what the bill is referring to whenever it talks about conversion therapy. Bill C-4 describes conversion therapy as any practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexuality, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, which means you're seeking to change them, their perspective, so that they identify as the sex that they were born. So if they were born a male, you're seeking to get them to identify as a male. If they were born a genetic biological female, you are getting, trying to get them to identify as a genetic biological female, cisgender. So it outlaws any practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexuality, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned at birth, and the bill goes further, or any practice, treatment, or service designed to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior repress a person's non-cisgender identity or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So that is what we're talking about. That's what Bill C-4 was talking about whenever it was speaking of banning conversion therapy. It was banning any attempt to convince someone to live in light of their biological, genetic, God-assigned gender. Now the ban on this therapy covers many, many different things, as I hinted at. It covers everything from shock therapy treatment, to reparative therapy, to hormone therapy, attempts at pornographic reconditioning. Think of Pavlov's dog, there, the conditioning process, psychological conditioning process. 
It outlaws psychoanalysis all the way down to one-on-one -on -one counseling. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ obviously opposes practices such as shock therapy and pornographic reconditioning. Those are sinful, and those are even to be categorized as abuse. Obviously, we would not support that. They, they ought to be outlawed. Anything like that should be outlawed. But to criminalize counseling, to criminalize the free and open discussion of ideas, that it criminalize seeking to reason with someone based upon fact and logic and seeking to convince a person of what is true. Beloved, that is the backbone of the church's work of ministering the gospel in this world. As Pastor Grant wrote in our January Oak Bridge article, every Christian is called to be a counselor. And you're either a good counselor or you are a bad counselor, but it is your responsibility to know the word of God and to bring the word of God to bear upon the lives of the people around you. Biblical counseling. The Canadian government has now declared that act, that attempt to reason with someone about what is true and get them to conform to what is true, the Canadian government has now declared that is illegal within their sovereign borders. It makes clear, this bill makes clear that it would not criminalize conversations in which a person expresses an opinion on these matters unless that conversation forms part of an intervention designed to make a person heterosexual or cisgender. So in other words, you can voice your opinion about something unless you are trying to convert someone to your opinion in voicing that opinion. Now what's really uh, uh, unfair about this bill, the double standard here, is that the other side that this bill is seeking to protect is doing the very thing that they're saying others can't do. Right? I mean, that's the inconsistency here. That's the, just a picture of the inconsistency of the secular worldview. You can't hold everything together in a secular worldview. It all falls apart. Now, it's important to keep in mind, too, that this bill not only includes conversations with mental health professionals, as they're called, but it also seeks to ban anyone from converting a person from this lifestyle, even if that person seeking to convince the other is that person's parent, so it criminalizes parents seeking to reason with their children, helping them understand what they are, what God made them, and calling them to live in light of that. That is now a criminal offense in the country of Canada. In fact, mere possession of what the Canadian government would classify as conversion therapy material is made illegal by this law. So if they discover conversion therapy material on your person, you can be charged legally as offending this law in the country of Canada. Now, does that include the Bible? Because the Bible most definitely does condemn this kind of behavior, these sexual perversions and deviations. Well, the bill itself doesn't say that it does, but the language of the bill is pretty broad and open to various applications. 
Uh, this ban not only includes what might be called forced attempts at conversion therapy, it even makes conversion therapy illegal for consenting adults. Now, why is that? Even if you want to go through some process of conversion therapy, the country of Canada now says you can't do it legally. And the reason why they stayed in the bill is because even allowing conversion therapy to take place perpetuates, quote unquote, myths and stereotypes that sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of LGBTQ2 people are undesirable and that they can or should be changed. So even to allow the practice of conversion therapy to take place within the country of Canada is simply perpetuating myths, it says in the bill, and stereotypes that homosexuality or any other kind of sexual deviancy that is under the banner of LGBTQ2 whatever is undesirable, can or should be changed. Now just as a side note, you know, the only reason that you have to protect a worldview or an idea in this way is when you know that that worldview or that idea is false. The, the truth is not afraid to stand up to scrutiny. The truth is not afraid to be open to criticism, to be examined, to be evaluated to be discerned as to whether or not it is true. When you have to criminalize even the act of questioning whether or not an idea or a worldview is right or wrong, that in and of itself is saying that those who perpetuate that law know that that worldview is false, that the idea cannot stand on its own two feet. Well, the bill passed, this Bill C-4 passed into law and it took effect sometime earlier this month. And our brothers in Canada have chosen to set apart this Sunday to take a stand against this newly declared law by taking up the weapons that God has entrusted to his people to fight against laws like this. They've set apart this Sunday to take up the weapon of prayer and to take up the weapon of bold, courageous proclamation of the truth. Our Canadian brethren put it this way in their 2020 Niagara Declaration. You can go look this up if you want. They stated, we must be mindful that freedoms not fought for are soon forfeited. Very wise and very true statement. Freedoms not fought for are soon forfeited. Now we all lament and we mourn the downgrade of our society we mourn over the encroachment of darkness upon the liberties and freedoms that have been protected historically in this country. But if we are not willing to right now take a stand, or maybe I should put it this way, our Canadian brethren recognize that if they are not willing right now to take a stand and show some Daniel-like civil disobedience, then they have no right to complain as the culture of Antichrist continues to steamroll their country. So today they are choosing to stand and they are choosing to fight. And they have called upon us as their American brethren to stand in solidarity with them today by publicly preaching a sermon that specifically proclaims the biblical truth that homosexuality 
and transgenderism are serious sins condemned by God and that continuing in this sin will exclude a person from salvation unless he or she repents and turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And so the elders believe that it is right for Oak Ridge Community Church to stand with our brothers and our sisters in Canada today. Now, why do this? <clears throat> Let me address this before we get into our text for today. Why do this? Should we really be concerned about what is taking place in relation to the church in another country? Besides, aren't we, by doing this, aren't we just painting a huge target on our own backs for the enemy to shoot at? Aren't we just putting ourselves out there and identifying ourselves as those who stand against ideas like this? Isn't that inviting trouble? Well, apart from the fact that Christ's church is universal, and therefore what happens to one part of the church must impact all the others, and apart from the fact that Christians are commanded never to be ashamed or afraid to speak the truth, even if it does paint a target on our backs. I mean, goodness, guys, we preach the gospel of a God who loves the world that hates him. Jesus said himself, if they treated me this way, they will treat you this way too. Speaking the truth will invite trouble from a world that hates the truth. But let me offer a few other reasons that it's wise for us to join in on this stand with our brothers in the north. In the north. Eh? <laughs> Number one. The reality is, for us, it's now or never. Our brothers in Canada are in the fire right now, and they are choosing to stand with Christ in that fire right now. If we in this country cannot take a stand for the truth when we have freedoms to do so, we will not have the spiritual and moral fortitude to do it when those freedoms are being repressed. Now, we should never, let me, this is a parenthesis here. Let me correct some of the ways that we talk about freedoms in this country. The freedoms that we hold up in this church as those that ought to be honored by the government are not freedoms that can be taken away. They are freedoms that can be repressed. They are freedoms that can be oppressed. They are freedoms that can be suppressed, but they are not freedoms that the government can take away because they are freedoms endowed upon us by our Creator. So we should never give in to the language that allows the government to think that freedoms are something that is in their prerogative to take away. Because once we start using that language, we are conceding to their claim that they gave us those freedoms to begin with. So stop, stop talking about the government taking away freedoms. They can't. They can only repress them and suppress them. They cannot take them away. So if we're not willing to stand 
in our freedoms, in our God-given freedoms now, while we have, while our government recognizes our freedom to do that, what makes us think we're going to do it when it's really costly to take that stand? Secondly, and related to the first, a second reason we ought to take this stand with our Canadian brethren today is because we are closer to being in the same boat with them than what we may realize. Someone informed me this past week, I did not know about this. Someone informed me this past week that our governor, Governor Walls, signed an executive order titled Order 21-25, which states that today, in, in the order, today, which is July 15th, 2021, today the state of Minnesota joins with the cities of Bloomington, Duluth, Golden Valley, Minneapolis, St. Louis Park, St. Paul, Red Wing, Robbinsdale, Rochester, West St. Paul, Winona, 23 other states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico to take action against conversion therapy. That was an executive order signed July 15th, 2021 by our governor. Now, Governor Walls has tried by fiat, like some dictator, to mandate all kinds of suppressions of freedoms and liberties. And here, he, like a dictator, is seeking to make conversion therapy illegal in the state of Minnesota, not by the consent of the governed, not by the process of establishing law, but by fiat. And if you don't know this, guys, he does not have the authority to do that. Do you understand that? The governor does not have the authority to sign executive orders at his own will and by his own discretion and make them law. It's not law because it has not been proposed as law by our duly elected representatives in the House and Senate. And it does not bear the force of law properly. Therefore, it cannot be governing us as law currently. Now, over and over again in this executive order, Governor Walls and his team appeal to scientific fact and scientific evidence that proves conversion therapy to be ineffective and harmful. Now, depending on how we define conversion therapy, we might agree. Some things classified as conversion therapy are harmful. As we said earlier, they ought to be outlawed. But when you're talking about merely counseling someone and identifying that as conversion therapy that ought to be outlawed, you have crossed the line. He appeals to scientific fact and scientific evidence that proves conversion therapy to be ineffective and harmful despite the fact that hard scientific fact declares loud and clearly that a person's biological sex cannot be changed, reassigned, or even manipulated in the slightest. You cannot change your genetic makeup. Your chromosomes are either XX or XY, right? You get those mixed up? It's not YY, right? Y, Y. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. 
I'm not going to make that joke. Never mind. Um, <laughs> you can't change that. You can manipulate your body. You can pump your body filled with hormones that are designed to repress or suppress the natural function of your God-given body, but you cannot change what you are biologically. See, it's not about science, is my point in bringing that part up. It's about an ideology. It's about a worldview, and it's even about a religious commitment to secularism and the supremacy of man over against the supremacy of God. That's what this is all about. And I want to point out, just by the reason I bring this bill up, is just to point out to you all that this ideology is knocking on our doors here at Oak Ridge Community Church. If we don't take a stand against it right now, when will we take a stand against it? So we need to stand with our Canadian brother now. Now thirdly, and most importantly, a third reason we ought to stand with our brothers in Canada today is because Christ has entrusted to his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it is our responsibility to use those keys. You guys know from last week that we are in between two messages focusing on the authority of the church. We have been given authority by Christ to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and to unlock those heavenly gates and call sinners to come in. And not just some sinners either. All sinners. Acts 17 God the Father stands before all the world and declares to all men everywhere, repent because he has fixed a day of judgment in which he will judge the world in righteousness through one man, our Lord Jesus Christ, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. God stands in Isaiah 45.22 and says, Turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. The church is responsible to take the keys of the kingdom of heaven and go to each and every kind of sinner in this world and seek to unlock those gates for them. Call them to join in on the banquet of reconciliation with God, of forgiveness from sin, of freedom from the bondage of their corruption and ruin. To call them to trust in the finished work of a crucified, resurrected, ascended, and returning Lord Jesus Christ. That is an authority that Christ, as the King of Heaven, has given to His church. That's an authority that Christ, as the Lord of Heaven and Earth, and the Ruler of the Nations, and the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, has given to his church, and it does not matter what government entity opposes that authority, the church has a responsibility to continue on. You know, when Daniel, when the king Darius, when he signed that decree saying that no one could pray to any other god except him for 30 days, Daniel just kept right on doing what he had been doing all the time. You know what he did? He ignored the king's decree. And I'll tell you, if all the people in the world began ignoring these unjust and freedom-limiting decrees, these decrees would lose their power. 
And I'm not trying to be political here. I'm trying to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. We have a responsibility to our society to seek to do good to our neighbors. To honor Jesus Christ above all else and seek to do what is best for those who live around us. Seeking to do what is best for them does not include being silent when tyranny is on the rise. That's not good. What is that going to do for your children? What will your children say about you in the stance that you took to stay that tyranny? Well, we look back with fondness upon our revolutionary fathers in this country. More so, I look with fondness upon the church leaders who led this country to that point in the century prior. A country where the freedom of the church has been lifted high in a way that no other country has experienced in this world. We look back with fondness on them, and yet, how much of our attitudes today would incriminate them if we were with them? Well, we love the freedoms, but we sure don't want to fight for them, right? This is an unbiblical passivity that has crept in upon the church, and it needs to be eradicated. Now, I'm not talking about taking up arms and creating some militia and storming the Capitol. What I am talking about is being faithful to use the weapons that our God has placed in our hands. We don't fight with weapons of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And they are designed for the purpose of tearing down strongholds and undoing ungodly ideas and taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Those are our weapons and that is our objective. Are we fighting? Are we fighting for that? That is what it means to use and to steward the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It means that we go on the attack ideologically. And we fight with the truth against every false idea. So, for these three reasons, I think it is right and it is proper that we at Oak Ridge Community Church stand with our Canadian brethren today for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of his church. Now, for the rest of this, well, hang on. My eye just caught a quote and I have to read this. We're going to move on to the rest of our time this morning in a minute, but John MacArthur wrote an open letter a couple weeks ago, and there was one statement in it that I thought, that needs to be heralded. That needs to be proclaimed loud and clear. He said, the world system and its human governments will gladly send people to hell, but our calling is to rescue people with the truth. That is our calling, isn't it? The world has no problem sending people to hell. They have no problem affirming people in a lifestyle that will send them to hell. We are called to a higher and more noble purpose with these keys of the kingdom of heaven. We are called to rescue people with the truth. So for the rest of our time this morning now, I want to challenge at least two lies that Bill C4 is built upon. And let me be upfront here at the beginning. I recognize and I believe that for the most part I am preaching to the choir on this issue. 
So if I get passionate and zealous and you think I'm waving my finger in your face, I promise you I'm not. I recognize that for the most part, we're on the same page here. Right? But I hope that you, like me, love the truth and you get excited when the truth is being proclaimed and your heart feels stirred and encouraged to go stand for the truth outside of these walls. <clears throat> I believe that I'm speaking to the choir for the most part, but I hope that you will take these truths and not be afraid to stand upon them as you interact with others who buy into worldly lies. All right, so the two lies that Bill C4 is built upon, these two lies I want to challenge. Let me read to you the paragraph where these lies are identified. You guys still with me? Some of you. This bill, so actually let me explain something here. Can I use the word nifty? Is that, is that still in vogue or trendy? I don't know. It's actually a pretty nifty thing that the Canadian government, whenever they propose a bill that would change the law, they put out a charter statement concerning that bill, explaining how that bill will impact the laws that are already established and the freedoms that are protected by those laws. Now, you can go find this charter statement and you can read for yourself that the Canadian government recognizes this is a direct confrontation with religious liberty. They acknowledge that and they state it and they justify their action to continue repressing religious liberty in that charter statement. I'm not making this up. But in that charter statement, we find the following words. It says, this bill, Bill C-4, would discourage and denounce harmful practices and treatments that are based on myths and stereotypes about LGBTQ2 people. I don't know what two means. Does anyone know what the two, number two, means at the end of that? I mean, I want to do justice to the position, but I don't know if it means like two as in anyone else who wants to be included too, but okay, whatever. LGBTQ2 people. These include the myths and stereotypes that the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of these people are undesirable conditions that can or should be changed. Those are the two lies I want to, I want to address. In this bill, they deny that sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression can be changed. And they deny that sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression should be changed. So on one side, they're saying it's not possible for people in this group to change. On the other side, they're saying it's not necessary for people in this group to change. While the Church of Jesus Christ cannot submit to ideas like this, nor will we acknowledge these lies as being true, not only because these lies are contrary to simple logic and reason and clear biological facts of nature, but far more importantly because they are contrary to the truth that God declares to us in His Word. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. We're going to walk through this somewhat briefly together. Here we are told not only that change in regard to sin is necessary, but far more amazingly, we are told that through our Lord Jesus Christ, change is possible. 
So over against what the Canadian government has to say about this and anyone else who seeks to ban conversion therapy who would say it's not necessary and it's not possible, the word of God comes next to them and declares, oh yes, it is necessary. And yes, by the way, it is possible. And so number one, notice why these verses say that conversion therapy from a sinful lifestyle is necessary. Simply put, Paul says here, it's necessary because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Now, when, when Paul says, or do you not know, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, there are seven uses of do you not know in this one chapter alone. It's a rhetorical device. It's somewhat sarcastic. He's looking at these people and he's saying, listen, this is something that should not be up for debate. This is something that is very clear and no one should be questioning this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Paul says, you should know this. This word here for unrighteous, too, is really important to pay attention to. This is not merely talking about unrighteous behavior. And that's why I don't necessarily like the ESV as a translation. Because it turns what this is actually, this is actually an adjective. There are adjectives here that are describing what people are. And what the ESV has done is taken those adjectives and turned them into verbs. And they're no longer condemning the adjective, they're condemning the action. That's a subtle shift, but it's a really important one. And you notice, if you notice, they only do that for the sin of homosexuality. It's the same way over in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I don't want to disparage the ESV, but I don't like it. Okay? Let me just throw that out there. All right. <clears throat> so take that with a grain of salt. You can talk to Pastor Grant if you disagree. The words here, it's, it's talking about this, this unrighteous. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is an adjective. This is describing what people are. Now, we know the sinful nature. We do what we do because of what we are. Right? We don't become what we are as a result of doing what we've done. We are sinners, therefore we sin. We didn't become sinners when we chose to sin. That happened in the fall in Adam, the only one who was ever created perfect, Adam and Eve. We inherit a sinful nature, and we are, by nature, sinners. And as we live out the expression of that sinful nature, we sin. And so we do what we do because of what we are. Now, Paul's saying here that those who are unrighteous, those who are characterized by a lifestyle of sin and, and contrariness to the law of God, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is why over against what, government, what the government of Canada or Minnesota or any other govern, government might say, the church must affirm the necessity of the biblical kind of conversion therapy. Because Jesus himself said, unless a person is converted, he cannot inherit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So at the end of all things when this old world is rolled up and there is only one kingdom and one ruler that stands, it will not be the kingdom of Canada. 
It will not be the kingdom of the United States of America. It will not be the kingdom of the Republic, the People's Republic of China. It will not be the kingdom of North Korea or any other worldly human-derived government. Human-upheld government. Authority comes from God. At the end of all things, the only kingdom that will be standing is the kingdom of heaven. And the only king that will be standing and demanding allegiance from all subjects in this world is King Jesus. So what's ultimately going to matter on that day, when the Son of God who entered into this world so that he might spread the kingdom of God upon the earth as the waters cover the sea, that's the kingdom of God. It's the glory of God. The Son of God entered into this creation so that He might bring the kingdom of God in all its fullness and in all its power and in all its glory to bear upon this world. Right now we see that working itself out incrementally. We see churches being established. We see sinners being redeemed and converted by the glory of Christ. We see His scepter being extended even into the lands of His enemies. Christ has a church in North Korea. We see the spread of the authority and the rulership of Jesus Christ happening right now in this world, but one day that kingdom is going to sweep in with power and glory in such a way that it's going to wipe the table of all the other governments that are in existence. Jesus Christ is going to demolish every other rule and reign. He's going to, Psalm 2, guys, He's going to shatter the nations. He's going to shatter the rulers of the nations like earthenware. earthenware. It's going to be a clay pot, and he's going to take his scepter, and he's going to swing at it. He's going to destroy the rulers of this world that set themselves against him. Right? So at the end of the day, what is going to matter most about us and about those around us when that kingdom comes? The only thing that's going to matter is not whether the kingdoms of this world upheld us as acceptable. What's going to matter on that day is whether or not we are acceptable and pleasing in the eyes of our king. It's the only thing that's going to matter. Are we in the kingdom of heaven or are we out of the kingdom of heaven? Paul says this is why conversion therapy is necessary. Because no no one who is unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You must be converted to receive the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Verses 9 through 10, Paul lists here, the Holy Spirit gives us examples of what it means to be unrighteous. If unrighteous, if that is an adjective that is describing these people, what kinds of behaviors are we talking about? What kinds of manifestations of unrighteousness are we looking for to know if someone is disqualified from the kingdom of heaven? Well, he lists out here a number of them you see in verses 9 through 10. He says, neither fornicators nor sexually immoral is maybe a better translation for that. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, among all the sins listed here, we as Christ's church do not have the authority to take our spiritual scissors and cut out two of those sins just because the governments over us ask us to or demand us to. 
We do not have the right to overlook what the Holy Spirit has clearly said to us in this passage. We don't have that right before God, but we also don't have that right before sinners. What kind of loving action is it to declare to someone caught in sin that it's entirely okay? It's not loving at all. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, and that includes those who twist God's design for human sexuality. A design that He has encoded in our biological and genetic makeup. We don't have the authority or the right to declare to anyone who is doing such activity that they will be accepted before God. Now you can see this in three ways in verse 9. So there are a number of sins here, but there are a few sins here that are dealing specifically with sexual immorality and expressions of homosexuality. So you notice, first of all, verse 9 begins by talking about the fact that no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is really just a catch-all phrase. Um, better, as I said earlier, it's better to translate that as sexual immorality or no sexually immoral person will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Really, what it's referring to is any perversion of God's original design for human sexuality, which is one biological male partnered with one biological female in a covenant union called marriage. Any perversion of that pattern, of that design established by God, fits into the category of sexual immorality, fornication. It's described more fully in the law of God in Leviticus 18. You can read there about all the different ways that humanity has devised to pervert the design of God for human sexuality. And all we've done since then is expand those categories. But at the root of it, at the heart of it all, it's the same source that's giving rise to all of these different expressions of sexual immorality. And all of them are condemned by God. All of them. So that obviously includes the broad spectrum of sinful behavior that is celebrated under the LGBTQ2 banner. So that's one way that Paul refers to and references this sinful behavior in addressing homosexuality and sexual morality as what will disclude someone from the kingdom of heaven. Secondly, notice in verse 9 that Paul goes on to describe those who are effeminate. The effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, the ESV combines this word and the next word. There are two words here in Greek. The ESV combines both of these words and makes it one phrase. And I don't think it's wrong to do that. But I think it is also important to understand what Paul is communicating by the two Greek words that he uses here. This word for effeminate, translated here effeminate, is in essence a word that means soft. And so Jesus uses this word in Matthew 11, verse 8, for example, to describe soft clothing. Okay? Same word. <clears throat> in Greek society, this word was used to describe boys and young men who displayed more feminine characteristics. Okay? You can imagine what I'm referring to. And in a sexual context, this word was used to describe the passive partner in a homosexual act. 
That's what Paul is getting at by using this word here. The effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Those who allow their bodies to be abused contrary to the design of God. Now the other side of that is the next word that Paul uses in verse 9, which completes this picture about homosexuality where we find the English word homosexuals. It's not only the fornicator and the effeminate who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but it is also the homosexual. Now this word is a combination of two words. Uh, one word meaning male and the other, other word meaning bed. So like you can put the picture together, it's one who lies in bed Male as a male, male with a male. In fact, you find that very language in the Greek version of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. This is where it seems that Paul draws both of these words and combines them together. Where it says, if there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, and they shall be put to death. That's homosexuality. Now, what's being pictured here by using both of these words, homosexual and effeminate, are the active and passive partners in a homosexual act, okay? So, basically, what I'm saying is this verse is covering all the bases and making it clear that there is no one characterized at all by this kind of activity who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They may be affirmed and upheld by this illogical and destructive world, but they will not find favor in the kingdom of God. And that, in essence, is why we must proclaim as the church that biblical conversion therapy is absolutely necessary, and it is a responsibility that the church must not and cannot abdicate. <clears throat> so that's why it's necessary. Now, secondly, this verse not only says, these verses not only say that it's necessary, it also says that it's possible for someone to change. Yes, all of these things that Paul has listed here in these verses will disqualify someone from receiving the kingdom of heaven, but the reality is that in Jesus Christ and by the working and the power of the Holy Spirit, there's hope. There is hope. The fate is not sealed for anyone on this side of eternity. The good news of the gospel is that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the change that is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven is also a change that is possible. So what God demands of us is what God has provided for us. That's the point. We're not declaring to the world a message that they need to change, they need to change, they need to change in their own power, by their own strength, with their own ingenuity. We don't come to the world telling them that it is possible for them to change themselves and they better start doing it. That is not what the church is declaring to the world. The church is declaring to the world, you must change. It is absolutely necessary for you to change if you are going to be in fellowship with God, but you cannot change yourself. God can change you. That's the message of the church. Yeah. The good news of the gospel, of Christ's finished work, is what we go proclaiming to people to change them. We're not going out into the world and proclaiming a morality for people to live up to. You understand that? We are preaching the gospel, and the gospel will bring morality. 
But we don't call people to morality before we call people to Christ. Look at verse 11. All of these things that Paul has mentioned in verses 9 through 10 will exclude a person from the kingdom of heaven. But look what he says here. And such were some of you. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers, right? They're not believers because they were not trapped in these sinful lifestyles. They are believers in spite of the fact that they were trapped in those sinful lifestyles. So often I hear it. Now, I'm getting to a point, but so often I hear people talk about this sin of homosexuality as if it's something that's unredeemable. As if this is the mark that God has consigned a person to hell and there is no redemption from that. Now, true, Romans 1 says that these homosexuality will mark a society that is being handed over in the wrath of God. But that does not speak to the individual who is caught in that sin. This verse right here tells us that it is possible for someone even trapped in this sin to find deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the tense of that verb, such were some of you. Not such are some of you. This is what you were, but this is no longer what you are. They used to be covered in and identified with these sins. But Paul says, you were washed. You were washed. In other words, something happened to these sinners that can only be compared to what happens when something dirty is washed up and made clean. These sins used to characterize them, but something came along with enough cleansing power to remove this dross from their lives. He says, not only were you washed, but you were also sanctified. That is, something came and separated you from all of these sins. Something came and made a division between you and the sin that used to characterize you. Something came with God's almighty power and severed the connection between the sin that used to identify you and separated you unto God, now giving you a new identity, which is citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So that which excluded you from the kingdom of heaven before, something has come alongside and sanctified you from that and sanctified you unto the kingdom. It's a wonderful picture. Wonderful picture. You're washed, you're sanctified, and you were justified. That is, you were declared righteous in the presence of God. Despite what you were, You used to be unrighteous. You used to be all of these things. You used to be disqualified from the kingdom of heaven, but now you are declared righteous in God's sight. You are declared worthy to be an heir of His kingdom. Something happened to these believers to take them out of their sin and death and exclusion from the kingdom of heaven and to bring them into fellowship with God and make them heirs of the kingdom of heaven. What happened? Well, the world comes alongside and says, 
nothing happened. It's impossible. It's impossible. And in fact, it's not even necessary. Why are you even talking about this? Well, what happened to affect such a transformation? What was powerful enough and strong enough and what was able to bring about such a radical change in these sinners in Corinth? You know the answer yourself, do you not? Do you know the answer of what came and caused this type of radical transformation in the lives of sinners? Don't you know this in your own life? Haven't you been radically transformed by something that took you from what you were and made you something new? Made you something glorious for Christ? Don't you know what that is? What is it? It's the gospel. It's the power of the name of Jesus Christ being applied by the ministry of the Spirit. That is the only thing that is powerful enough to sever a sinner from his or her sin and make them children of the living God. My friend, this is why the world declares that conversion therapy is an impossibility. This is why they declare that scientifically it is impossible to change someone who identifies in the LGBTQ2 categories. Because the world does not possess what is powerful enough to sever the love relationship between the sinner and his sin and to set that sinner free. The world doesn't have anything strong enough to do that. And you will never have success setting a sinner free from any sin, much less the sin of homosexuality, by invoking the naturalistic, man-developed tools and methods of the world. Never happen. The sinner loves his sin too much. It's an issue of affections. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning. Conversion is an issue. It's a matter of your affections being changed so that you no longer want to do the things you used to do. You used to love your sin. Now you're set free and you hate your sin. You used to hate the idea of God and you avoided the idea of God at all costs, but now you're consumed with Him. What happened? Conversion happened. Regeneration happened. The name of Christ happened. Came into your life. Every Christian, no matter what sins used to define us, know the reality of this truth. We know that nothing was strong enough to break our infatuation of drunkenness with drunkenness and lust and thievery and violence. Christ and Christ alone, by the power of his death and resurrection, was able to set us free. It's like, the, it's like the lame man in Acts 3.16, <laughs> right? His whole life spent lame. Peter and John come and they invoke the name of Jesus over this man. And they say, rise and walk in the name of Jesus. And what does this man do? He gets up and he starts walking. People start asking, how did this happen? What made this man change? Peter responds in verse 16, on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ's name, in the name of Jesus, this man has been strengthened. 
Well, in that same way, <clears throat> it's only on the basis of the name of God's holy servant, the crucified and risen author of life, it is only in the name of Jesus that we, like this man, were strengthened to stand up out of our lameness in sin and to walk by the Spirit of Christ out of the dark dungeon of our depravity. Only the name of Jesus gave us perfect spiritual health and delivered us from the bondage of our sin. And the reason it is only invoking the name of the Lord Jesus in faith that is powerful enough to set the captive free is because it is only the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit is pleased to own and magnify and exalt by bringing the sinner the liberty Christ has purchased for him. It's, it's only Christ that the Spirit of God is pleased to own and exalt in the life of a sinner. It's not reparative therapy. It's not shock therapy. It's no matter of reconditioning that the Spirit of God is going to own in a sinner's life. It's Christ Jesus that the Spirit of God is going to own in that sinner and that the Spirit of God is going to exalt in that sinner. Remember what Jesus said, the Spirit, when He comes, He's going to take of what is mine and He's going to give it to you. Well, Jesus Christ knew what it was to walk in fellowship with the Spirit. Jesus Christ knew what it was to walk in freedom from sin. Jesus Christ knew what it was to walk in the joy of fellowship with His Father. He knew what it was to be filled with all the fullness of the Spirit without measure. And it is the Holy Spirit's job and responsibility to bring all that belonged to Jesus Christ, the God-man, and begin to apply it richly in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ, the God-man. He takes from that which belongs to Christ and He begins to give it to us. Freedom from sin. Fellowship with God. The joy of walking in obedience to our Father's will. That is what God brings about and that is the only thing powerful enough to change a sinner from their sin, to take that sinner out of his or her sin and bring them into the liberty of the Spirit in Christ. Now, I'll just, I know, I just need to change in my mind my normal time for preaching. I think that's what I need to do. But I know I'm at the end. And I hope you know I'm at the end. There are just a couple things I want to point out here. As we end today, I want you to walk away keeping in mind some things that will help guide you in walking for the glory of Christ through this scenario, okay? Number one, the world declares to these sinners, homosexuals, transgenders, those who are caught in uh, gender dysphoria, Whatever, whatever you want to call it. The world declares to these sinners that there is no hope. The world declares that there is no hope of deliverance. There's no hope of salvation with God. And the world offers to them a cheap substitute. Assuring them that they will have salvation provided by the world. But let me ask you this question. 
What is salvation and acceptance with the world going to accomplish in the day that Christ's kingdom comes? It is a cheap substitute designed to placate the sinner right now, not addressing the reality of what that sinner will have to pay later. What hope is there for someone who is so internally conflicted that they are ready to mutilate their bodies and ruin the rest of their lives in hope of finding relief? The world declares to that person there is no hope. And not only does the world declare to that person there's no hope, the world declares to that person this is actually good. It's good for you to mutilate your body. It's good for you to suppress that which is natural, a natural function of your body. It is good for you to ruin your life. It's good for you to enter into a category of society where the suicide rates have skyrocketed. Because that is the only result of living in contradiction to yourself. You will never find peace. You will never find acceptance. You will never find rest when you are constantly laboring to be something other than you are. The world comes alongside and says, that's good. You should stay just like that. Because we don't have anything to offer to change you anyway. So we'll just change the categories and we'll call good evil and we'll call evil good so that you feel more comfortable with living that way. The world declares to these sinners that there's no hope. But beloved, we have the message of hope. We really do. And the reason Christians don't proclaim the message of hope the way they ought to is because they don't yet know the fullness of hope in the message. You understand what I mean by that? I'm not saying you're not a believer. But I'm saying that you have not spent enough time tarrying with the God of hope in the night watches You haven't labored to be filled with the spirit of hope enough in order to be compelled to share that hope with others if you're not sharing. We have the message of hope and we know the hope that it offers. We not only need God's love and mercy and compassion for sinners to fill our hearts, but we also need to go forth declaring the powerful message of forgiveness and cleansing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. We need to be confident in the message. That's what I'm saying. That's number one. Number two. These sins relating to homosexuality are just two sins, or three, listed among many that will disqualify a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. Therefore, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, we cannot be imbalanced and elevate the severity of one of these sins over against the severity of any of the others. The drunkard needs to be told that his sin is just as evil and wicked and disqualifying in the eyes of God as the homosexual needs to hear The thieves and adulterers and liars, and let me add to this, adultery includes looking at pornography and looking at women in lust or fantasizing about men who are other than your husband or not your husband. All of that is is included in this idea of adultery. 
Don't forget. The thieves and adulterers and liars need uh, to understand that their sin leads just as much to exclusion from Christ's kingdom as all the various forms of sexual immorality encoded in LGBTQ2. Uh, I think just in my limited 34-year experience in evaluation, I think this is where previous generations have dropped the ball. They despised homosexuality. They even outlawed it. They allowed it to be outlawed anyway. But they began to permit things like divorce. When you don't rail against divorce with the same energy and passion and zeal for the Lord as you do against homosexuality, something's wrong. They would never be able to dream of sex in past generations. They would never have been able to dream of sexual perversions like transgenderism, but they sure embraced hustler and playboy. They despised men caught in homosexual temptations, but applauded womanizers and heroes at getting drunk and brawling. Well, there's no room for that here. All of these sins are enough to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, all of these sins must be warred against equally with the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ. All right, that's number two. Number three, and these will be faster, I promise. We must allow the fact that all of these sins exclude us from the kingdom of God to drive us to deal patiently gently and with understanding towards those who happen to be caught in sins of homosexuality. Remember Titus chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. We, as those who have been delivered out of our sin, we are to slander no one, we are to be peaceable, we are to be considerate, and we are to demonstrate all gentleness to all men. Not some men. All men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to various lusts. If you don't see your enslavement to your previous lust as equal to someone else's enslavement to transgenderism, then you do not yet have a biblical perspective of your own sin. You must be driven by these realities to deal patiently and gently and with understanding with anyone, no matter what sin they are caught in. And then fourthly, we need to recognize that the need for biblical conversion therapy is necessary, not merely for homosexuals and others caught in the LGBTQ alphabet. We need to recognize that biblical conversion therapy is necessary for any and everyone caught in any of these sins. And it is the church's job to bring the only conversion therapy that works to sinners like these. To take the keys of the gospel and unlock the gates of heaven so that sinners can enter in. The message of Jesus Christ is that key. And by the grace of our God and the finished work and redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ, what is needed now is provided now. And what is necessary is now possible. So may we with grace and love and patience and understanding go forth and continuing, continue declaring freedom to the captive sinners in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of our God and Father.
pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we recognize what's going on in our world and in the globe and our society, and we pray that you would give us spiritual strength and courage and uh, power in your spirit to stand firm upon the truth of your gospel. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But we, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are all being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I pray that you will go forth and declare the message of the Lord and help others behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, so that they might be transformed too. Amen. May you go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.